0: Let's get into the Word tonight. We're in Hebrews chapter 12, and we left off uh, in verse 3, Hebrews chapter 12, uh, verse 3. We'll pick up our study this evening. Let's pray together. Father, as we spend time in your Word tonight, and we look at uh, the topic of, of discipline, of your correction in our lives, we pray that you would speak to us. And that we would respond even to the rebuke, the instruction, the training that you would want to bring into our lives. Because we know you're desiring for us to grow and to be in a place of, of greater holiness. I pray for those that have lost hope in their life of, of change being possible. That you would encourage them in Christ. You'd encourage us in Christ. That change is possible. As we look at the unshakable kingdom. Or may we be encouraged. May we be challenged. So we invite you into this time in Jesus' name. Amen. Join me in verse 3. For consider him who endured such hostility from sinners against himself, lest you become weary and discouraged in your souls. We looked at that in depth last week. The author of Hebrews is really encouraging us if you're discouraged, if you're worn out, if you feel like getting up, giving up. You've not resisted to bloodshed, striving against sin. And we pick up in verse 5 and you have forgotten the exhortation which speaks to you as sons My son, do not despise the chastening of the Lord, nor be discouraged when you are rebuked. So he quotes from Proverbs 3, verse 11 and 12. One of the things that can discourage us is not having our eyes on Jesus, to be carrying around weight and sin. But also something can discourage us is this truth of God correcting us, of God chastening us and God rebuking us. And the author says, you've forgotten this verse from the Old Testament, from from the Proverbs that says, my son, don't despise the chastening of the Lord. Don't be discouraged when you're rebuked uh, by the Lord. Our tendency when we get corrected is to despise it, right? Remember maybe growing up when you received some correction and that tendency is, I'm going to be angry at the person that's bringing correction into my life. And then once we move past that anger and despising it, a lot of times then we get discouraged. We, we have this real victim type mentality and we're feeling like I'm never going to change. I'm, I'm never going to grow and all those types of things enter into our hearts and minds. And here we're encouraged, don't be discouraged if you're being corrected by God. The, the word rebuke means to expose, convict, reprove. God loves us enough to expose us, to rebuke us, to approve us, to try to get us on that right track with the Lord. And here's the principle in verse 6. It says, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Discipline displays love. Discipline displays love. And I know culture doesn't believe this any longer. Our definition of love, if I love you, if I care for you, then I'm going to let you do whatever you want. But God's understanding of love is that he loves us enough to chasten us. He loves us enough to correct us and to rebuke us. Because he has our best interest in mind. If you really love someone, and you really care for someone, and they're, they're headed towards destruction, their decisions that they're making, you're going to do anything possible to prevent them from entering into that destruction. So as God will discipline us, because we're his children, first we have to understand, this means I'm loved by God. God loves me enough to get in my way. I was meditating on this, and just thinking about this today, and Over the course of my life and times where God has disciplined me and God has corrected me, convicted me, rebuked me. And I'm so thankful for it because my heart was wrong. My actions were wrong. I I was heading in an area of of destruction and it's based upon the love of God. Okay, so what's your attitude towards God's discipline in your life and God's correction? Do, Do you despise it? Do you get discouraged or do you embrace it? Because you understand that God loves you. He, He chastens those that he loves. The word chasten, we don't use a lot. When was the last time you used the word chasten? What does it mean? To train, to correct, to discipline, to instruct, to educate. So it comes from the root word to train or instruct. So it's not that God's mad at you. Whenever we hear the word chasten and scourge, we're like, oh, God must be really mad at me. No, he loves you. He loves me. And he says, I am going to correct. I'm going to instruct. I'm going to train. And he knows that some of that training has to come through consequences, doesn't it? Sometimes we don't learn without God bringing the correction into our lives. So so how does God chasten? How does he correct? It comes through his word. That's why we need to be in the word. That's why it's great that you're here on a Wednesday night in July, because as we spend time in God's Word, there will be those moments where God's Word pierces us, and God's Word busts us, and it's uncomfortable, and it's that sharp two-edged sword that gets us right where we need to respond to the Lord. Read God's Word with the anticipation that God's going to correct us. That's the loving correction of God through His Spirit. There's times where the Holy Spirit will begin to convict. Sometimes, right in the middle of sin, right in the middle of losing our temper or being covetousness or consumed with lust. And there's the Holy Spirit that's bringing that correction that will take place in in our lives. It's through consequences. A lot of times, the correction comes through the natural consequences. Sin's like a wrecking ball. And we've set it into motion and God in his love says, okay, here comes the consequences of your choices and the consequences of your actions. My experience with the Lord is he starts very gently, very quietly, very calmly, a little bit of pressure, saying, Eric, are you going to respond to this correction that I'm bringing in your life? If I don't listen, harden my heart, I get stubborn, then God will increase the pressure. He'll increase the intensity. He'll increase the consequences. And sometimes God in his wisdom is way more patient than we would ever be with one another or ourselves. So God will wait to bring the correction. He'll wait. He'll wait. He'll wait. Sometimes months. Sometimes years. And our tendency is to think, I'm getting away with this. Or maybe I'm not the child of God because God's not correcting me. He's not disciplining me. He's just letting me get away with this. No, he's not letting you get away with it. And don't excuse his patience for God's approval or license for sin. Does that make sense? Because this is what I've noticed. If we continue in that hard-hearted state, his correction comes quickly severely, and absolutely humbling. God decides, this is the moment I'm going to turn the lights on. This is the moment I'm going to open up the doors. There's no longer any hiding sin. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to wait till that moment, right? I don't want to wait till I get exposed. I don't want to wait until God has to have this Samson moment with my life. I would much rather keep short accounts with God and listen to the word, Listen to the still small voice of the Holy Spirit, because God is a master at this, and he's a loving father at this, and he's always pursuing our hearts. He's always pursuing a relationship with us. The correction, it displays his love. Goes on and says, and scourges every son whom he receives. That sounds like a promise. We sang of promises of God tonight. That's a promise, He's like, if you're my son, if you're my daughter, you will get scourged. You will get corrected. If you endure chastening, God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom a father doesn't chasten? But if you are without chastening, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate and not sons. Discipline proves relationship. That's what is being declared here in God's word. So again, the encouragement is we're running a race. We're running this marathon with Christ. Don't get discouraged because of discipline, because it proves God's love, but it also proves that you're a legitimate child of God. Think this through for for a moment. As a dad, I only discipline my four kids. I don't discipline other people's kids. Why not? Because I'm not their dad, right? I can go to the grocery-only Walmart over here or King Supers over here, go to Home Depot and some other kids acting up, and it doesn't bother me. Why? Because they're not my kid, right? I'm just like, Lord bless you, you know? I've, I empathize with you. I've been there, right? I know, I know what that's like. I put my parents through that, right? But when it's my own child, then it's my responsibility to bring the correction. Because they're my children. That's the unique relationship that I have with them. My dad believed in this as well. He had the policy that him and my mom were the only ones that spanked us kids, because that was the job of dad and mom. I went to a Christian school, it was a small Christian school in Southern Oregon. And one day, I remember very clearly, I got caught cheating. And the teacher gave me an opportunity to come clean, and I lied. And she says, "I know you're cheating," and she brought out her proof. Oh, the worst, right? And she's like, "I'm going to have to call your your parents because the policy of the school is if you got caught cheating, you were spanked either by the principal, and his name was Mr. Payne, I believe, if I'm remembering right. At least that's how I re- that's what I remember him for. And so, they call my dad at work, and my dad says, "Nope." I'm the only one that spanks my boy. So he comes down to the principal's office. I'm sitting in the principal's office. And you had to get spanked right at the principal's office. There was none of this like, well, I'll spank him at home. Like it was going to happen in the principal's office. And sure enough, I got got spanked by my dad. Why? Because he's my dad. And that's the relationship that a father and a mother has with their child. It's part of loving a child. And so how much more so with God? If we're his children, then he's going to love us enough. He's going to care enough about our character to bring that discipline. So be encouraged. You belong to God. You are God's son. You are God's daughter. He's not going to let you get away with it. He's going to keep after us until we come to that place of repentance. Verse 9, furthermore, we've had human fathers who correct us and we Pay them respect. Maybe this wasn't your, your experience. Maybe you didn't have a, a parent who gave you loving loving discipline. So you go, I can't relate to that. I got to do whatever I wanted to do. But the understanding here, culturally, is that human fathers corrected them. And we give respect to our human fathers. Shall we not much more readily be in subjection to the father of spirits and live? This stood out to me today. This is the point of the text, is that our spirits, our beings, who we are, that we would be subject to our Father. God wants surrender. He wants all of us. And sometimes God's correction and his training and his chastening is not just God trying to get the sin out of our lives. Yes, that's true. It's not just always God dealing with the negative, but God saying, I want more of your heart. I want more of your passion. I want more of your submission to me, your surrender to me. And so he's after that, to bring us to the place where we're completely surrendered to God. In verse 10, For they indeed for a few days chasten us as seemed best to them. But he for our profit that we may be partakers of his holiness. If you're a parent, you know we do our best in discipline, and sometimes we make mistakes. Can I get an amen? Amen. Parents, can you think of a few mistakes that you've made? (laughs) I can think of several for me, where you don't have the information right, right? But you move forward with discipline, and you're like, oh man, I, I messed that up. Or sometimes when we're frustrated and our hearts are not in the right place, we're doing discipline so that our lives would be made easier, like, You're bothering me, and so I'm going to deal with this. God, he disciplines us for a purpose. Discipline is purposeful. So that we could have profit, that we could grow, and we'd be partakers of his holiness. So we can trust our Father. We can trust his character, that he's doing something that's good for us to teach us about holiness. Holiness is wholeness, a righteous life. God knows that holiness is good for us. Jesus said that he came to give us life and to give it more abundantly. What is the abundant life? Living in relationship with him, walking in obedience to Jesus Christ, and that righteous life leads to good things in our lives. Not easy things, but good things, worthwhile things. So here's God. He's saying, Eric, I'm not going to let you off the hook. Gang, Rocky Mountain Calvary, I'm not going to let you off the hook. I want you to be a partaker of holiness. So I'm going to expose this area of your life. I'm going to allow you to experience consequence. I'm going to correct you through the word of God. For that purpose of bringing about holiness. And verse 11, now no chastening seems to be joyful for the present. Can I get another amen? It's not fun to receive it. It's not fun to give it. It's just no fun. It stinks. All right? But painful. Nevertheless, afterward, it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. Discipline requires reception. Reception. Those who are willing to be trained by it. So as God puts us through discipline, is it painful? Absolutely. Is it Purposeful, yes, but it's painful. God knows that he's getting our attention through pain. And so he says, oh, here's, here's some consequences. Here's some conviction from the Holy Spirit. Here's the word of God bre- breaking you open. Here's some, I'm exposing you so that we'll partake in holiness. But notice what happens. It's painful, but it works. It yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness This is what what God's longing in our lives. I think it's what we're longing in our lives. Saying, God, I want fruit. I want the peaceable fruit of righteousness. I don't want to look in the mirror and be the same person six months from now. I don't want to look in the mirror and be the same person six years from now. I, I want the peaceable fruits of righteousness. So how does that happen? To those who will be trained by it be trained by God's discipline, to be trained by God's correction. Does everybody that receives discipline gain from it? No, absolutely not. The proverb speaks about it over and over again. Fool after fool after fool after fool gets angry because they're corrected. Their heart becomes more hard. They choose not to be trained by it. So here's the question for all of us. Am I being trained by God's correction? Is there an area of my life tonight where God has been speaking to me? God has been challenging me? And it's easy to look over our shoulder and go, well, I do better than I used to do. Or I do better than that person over there. No, it's not a comparison with ourselves or comparison with someone else. You know, I know, God's checking you on pride. You know, God's stirring you to share the gospel more. God's wanting to produce more love and, and joy in our lives and, and so okay okay Lord you got my attention you got my attention I, I'm willing to to respond for some you're hiding a deep dark secret and you're thinking that you'll take it with you to the, your grave Jesus said there's no hiding what's done in secret will be made manifest on the rooftops. And I believe you've got a choice tonight as you can turn to the Lord in repentance and honesty and transparency before God makes it known. Before God publishes it on your Facebook page, unbeknownst to you. Before your spouse finds out that you're in adultery. Before your habit of pornography gets Revealed to all. Before the stealing from the company gets known. The anger gets revealed. God's saying it's right now. Here's your opportunity to respond in the sanctuary. What does that look like? It involves crying out to God. And it also involves confessing to the appropriate people. It may mean that you go to your spouse and say, this is the reality of who I am. This is the reality of what pornography is in my life and, and how it's damaging my life. But guess what? The time of refreshing comes after repentance. What's God's sweet spot? Do you guys know? What's a sweet spot? Humility and brokenness. He loves it. He loves it. He says he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. This sounds like a lot of humility. Being open and honest before the Lord. Or we can wait. Or you can wait. And if you're the child of God and you've trusted him for salvation and the Holy Spirit lives inside of you, it's not my words, it's God's words, He will correct you. He will discipline you. And He's such a good Father, He'd much rather do it gently. But if we harden our hearts, then He's going to expose it. But we have to be willing to be trained. It takes a soft heart. Okay, Lord, you got my attention. This is probably not very politically correct or culturally correct, but we have a very large dog. She's in Newfoundland. She's about 165 pounds. And she is very gentle. She's nine, almost 10 years old. She's starting to fade. But when she was a puppy, the dog trainer's like, you better get a hold of this dog. Because when this dog steps on your foot, you're going to feel it. Our kids were little, and this dog will knock over your kids and could in- injure your kids. So you better make sure that this dog knows who's boss. So in those years, Lady Lou had a choke chain, right? And we're walking her on the leash, and she had to learn to respond to us. Otherwise, she would be walking us, literally, right? And really, the question for for Lady was, how much pressure do I have to put on the choke chain, right? Some of you are looking at me like, he used a choke chain on his dog. If you want to find another church, I understand, but... (laughs) really did. And you give Lady Lou a little tug on this choke chain, and sometimes she's like, I'm willing to be trained by it. I get this. And there's other times where she's like, not doing it, not doing it. So what happens? There gets more pressure, right? And then she learned. And now she goes on walks, and for many years now, there's no need for a choke chain. She's got, she's got the system down, right? And her life's much more pleasant, And our relationship has been much better, right? And how do we want to go with God? He's connected to us. He's committed to us. He's our father. He's not going to give up on us. So do we want our relationship to be better with with him? Then let's walk with him. Let's let him lead. Let's stop fighting over control. Let's let him have it. And if he gives us a little tug, all right, I got you. I got you. I know what happens if I continue to push in this direction. Here's a side note before we move on. Does this have application for us as parents, for those of us that have been blessed with kids? Absolutely. Absolutely. God's work, God's word is so rich. And parenting is difficult. You know, Dr. Dobson has said and taught, you know, parenting is not for cowards. And that's true, isn't it? God's got to give us courage in parenting. But I think we've got a choice to make in parenting are we going to go to God's word for counsel on how to parent? So we're trying to figure out this whole thing called parenting. Where do we go? You'll be blown away as you, if you study the scriptures where God gives his advice, his counsel, his commands on how to parent. And there's value to all of the parenting books that have been written from a Christian perspective But sometimes it's really refreshing to take all those books, set them on a shelf, and do a study and begin to to see, well, what does God say about parenting? What can I learn from God's word about parenting? And okay, God, you're going to have to deal with me. And a portion of this is providing our kids with loving discipline, with loving discipline. Kids instinctively find great comfort in knowing that there is a consistent boundary. If you think of being on a tall, high-rise building, my my great grandmother, she lived in a kind of assisted living in downtown Eugene, Oregon. And there was probably like nine or ten levels to this, this building. And we'd go up to the top, my brother and I, and we'd look down onto the to the main street, and it was terrifying. I couldn't imagine what that would have been like with no boundary, right? And culture is saying, if you love your kids, don't give them any boundary. You got to. Because that boundary makes them feel loved. That, that boundary makes them feel safe. It communicates value to them. I don't, I don't want you to, to step over. And if, if you start to step over, I'm going to give you a loving consequence and be consistent. Dr. Dobson's written a book called Raising Girls. He interviewed all of these college-age girls that were at Family Institute uh, years ago, and he includes the interviews in his book. And hands down, all of these girls that are 21 years old said, I would have loved it if my dad cared for me enough to stand up to me and not let me get away with this teenage daughters, and they said, I was pushing it with dad. I was, I would, one girl, I'll remember this in the book, she said, I would intentionally put on the most unmodest clothes that I could possibly think of just to see if my dad would make me change. She had a change of clothes in her bag. She had no desire to go out like that. And as soon as she got out of the house, she would change. And she said her dad never called her on it. And to her, it communicated to her, dad doesn't love me. Isn't that interesting? Because a lot of times as dads, with daughters, we think, well, I don't want to push it too far. Or I don't want to hold them to too high of a standard. Or if I start talking to them about their clothes, I'm going to lose their heart altogether. No, that's not it at all. What they need is for us to sit down and say, look, I love you. I care about you. This is why you can't dress like this. And so I'm going to hold you accountable to that. So you pray through it, you know, and let's pray for each other. Don't give condemnation to another parent. Uh, we've got enough of our own to deal with, right? Like we don't, the last thing we want RMC to be is an environment of parental competition and condemnation. Amen, Right? there's no room for that. You know, there is room to say, I want to get into God's Word and see how I can be a loving parent who provides loving, loving discipline. And I believe God will give you wisdom of how to be able to live that. out. If you're a single parent, man, I'm praying for you. I can't imagine how difficult it is as a single parent, but God's Word is true for you. Use it. Say, you know what, I'm going to love my kids enough to give them that loving instruction. If you are more on the younger category, and you say, I'm not a parent, maybe you're a college student, maybe you're a high school student, and you have a loving parent who has given you discipline over the years, go home and tell them thank you. (laughs) You're like, I heard a Bible study tonight out of Hebrews chapter 12, and I wanna thank you for loving me enough to give me loving discipline because they were following God's word. Don't despise it, don't get angry at them, Don't try to figure out if they were too harsh or not. Go, you know what? You saw value in me and you loved me enough to provide loving discipline. So there's a lot here in in these verses. Let's go on into verse 12. Therefore, strengthen the hands which hang down and the feeble knees. God's correcting you. God's dealing with you. Instead of getting discouraged, just strengthen your hands. Say, say, all right, it's time to go for it it's a time to apply myself and those hands that hang down and those feeble knees it's time to be strengthened it's time to move on and receive the correction of the lord verse 13 and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be dislocated but rather be healed this is a quote from proverbs 4 verse 26 to make straight paths for your feet is interpreted level You start to think about the path forward. You go, God's correcting me. You think about this issue of pornography, and you realize, okay, I've got to make a straight path forward. I've got to confess to God and to others. I need accountability in my internet access. I need to memorize scripture. I need to go after this issue of sexual sin in my life. I've got to make a a straight path forward. Maybe it's covetousness. And then God's calling you out on covetousness. And all right, it's time to make a straight path forward. Instead of longing for everything else that hasn't been given to me, I'm gonna thank God for what he has given to me. Lord, thank you for this old beater car. You know, thank you for these pairs of shoes that I've got. Thank you that the Holy Spirit lives inside of me. I'm making a, a straight path forward. You think, man, friends have been pulling me away from Christ and I start doing stuff I never thought I'd do, and I'm smoking pot, and I'm drinking, and I'm sleeping around, and I'm angry. Make a straight path forward. I can't hang out with those friends anymore. I know what happens when I hang out with those friends. And notice what happens. What what, what takes place? Things that are broken because of sin, they're lame, they're dislocated because of sin, God brings healing. God brings restoration. You take this step of faith, and then God brings that Tremendous healing that takes place in our lives. Get practical with the plan of moving forward. Verse 14, pursue peace with all people and holiness without which no one will see the Lord. Sometimes I like to, in my flesh, leave things out of God's word. Pursue peace with some people. That's how I wish this read, right? Does all really mean all? Does all mean Mr. Jerkface? You know Mr. Jerkface. Mrs. Jerkface. That person. Yep. All means all. This this is part of moving forward. This is part of holiness. That we would pursue peace with all people. Is it always possible? No. Because it depends on two people. It takes two people to live in peace. So they may not choose to live in peace, but I've done everything possible on my end to be at a peaceful relationship with them. Pursue peace with all people and holiness. Where We're going after holiness. We're realizing, man, holiness glorifies the Lord. Holiness brings me in greater relationship with God. Holiness benefits me and the ones that I love. I'm going to go after holiness the same spirit that rose Christ from the dead lives in me. I don't have to be defeated to sin. I'm going to pursue holiness in my life. And that, this is a tremendous promise at the end of four, verse 14. Without which no one will see the Lord. Right relationships with people will help me to see the Lord. As I pursue peace, I come to understand the Lord in a greater way. Holiness in my life will help me to understand God in a greater way. You know, my glasses, they're very helpful. I'm nearsighted, so when I take my glasses off, I can still read, but you guys just got really fuzzy, right? So let's say these glasses, if they they had some mud on there, would it affect my ability to see? Absolutely. If the glasses are clean, can I see better? Yes. So we might be gazing at the word, gazing at the Lord, meditating upon the Lord, but there's all the sin, there's all this junk in our lives, all these things that we don't want to deal with. And if we let God cleanse the lens, we could see him in a greater way. That's why pursuing holiness is worth it, because it results in a closer relationship with God. How come two people can read Romans 8, and one person gets nothing out of it? And the other person walks away going, this is phenomenal. Did you che- Did you get this? This is amazing because it has to do with the heart. It has to do with the condition of the heart. Where's my heart as I'm approaching the word of God? In verse 15, looking carefully, lest anyone fall short of the grace of God, lest any root of bitterness spring up, cause trouble, and by this many become defiled. So as we're pursuing peace, we start to realize there could be an issue with bitterness. And bitterness is defined as falling short of the grace of God. How so? Because God has been so gracious to me, when I fail to forgive someone else, I'm falling short of the grace of God. God forgives all sin. He's paid for it all. He's paid for it completely, but he does require me to extend that grace to others. He does require me to let go of the revenge, to let go of the bitterness. The description of this is very interesting. It says, you know, just the root of bitterness. Just, just how big's a root? Not so big. And it gets in there and it grows and it grows and it grows and it causes lots of trouble. So much trouble that many become defiled. Wait a second, we're singular. Bitterness is my own issue. It's in my heart. It's not affecting anybody else. Hogwash. You can spot a bitter person a mile away, can't you? They're coming towards you and they're bitter. Everything about them exudes bitterness. But they don't realize it. They think that they're validated in their, in their position. Has that taken place in our hearts? You know. Maybe as we've been going through tonight's Bible study, you're like, adultery, no. Anger, not so much. And you gave yourself the hall pass. And now all of a sudden, there's this understanding of bitterness. And the Lord's saying it's time to forgive. Don't let that bitterness come in your hearts. There's two monks. And these monks were headed out in the field To harvest the crops and bring them back into to to the monastery. They come to a river that had washed out the bridge and there was a widow who needed to get across this river. So one monk, he says, would you like us to help you cross the river? We'll carry you across the river. And she says, yes, that would be fabulous. So, So they they pick her up and together they carry her across the river. And the second monk, he just begins to start to complain about his back. He's like, oh, my my back, it just hurts so bad from picking up that old lady, you know. And then he starts going another mile, and he's like, oh, it's just getting worse. Complaining about it, complaining about it, complaining about it. And now he's just laying on the ground because he's in so much pain. And the first monk says, you know, the reason that you're in so much pain and you're complaining is you're still carrying that widow. I put her down miles ago, right? Right? And sometimes someone hurts us, and we're just carrying it, and we're carrying it, and we're carrying it, and this bitterness consumes us. You guys have probably heard me share on this before, but I firmly believe that forgiveness is a choice of the will, not based upon our emotions. We don't feel like forgiving when we've been hurt. We choose to forgive because God's forgiven us. You declare, I forgive them in Jesus' name. I'm choosing to begin to pray for them and then our emotions come in line. But haven't they hurt you enough? You don't want to become defiled. Verse 16, Lest there be any fornicator or profane person like Esau who for one morsel of food sold his birthright. The progression of the text is very interesting. The example of bitterness is Esau. Jacob and Esau, the twins who were born. And Esau gave up his birthright for a bowl of soup. Split pea soup, bean soup, right? What a terrible decision. The blessing of God is the oldest. He gives it up. And the Bible says it's connected to his bitterness. At some point, had he gotten... Jealous and envious and bitter of Jacob, to the point where he didn't care about the birthright. Also what's included in this is fornication, and he became a, a profane person. The bitterness grew into sexual sin. The bitterness said, "You know what, I don't care. I don't care anymore. I've been hurt, I've tried, I've followed God. This is how it's worked out. It doesn't even matter. I'm throwing all caution of the wind. I don't care what I do sexually. I don't care what I do to other people. I don't care about my birthright. I don't care about the Lord. I'll take the bean soup. What happened? A hard heart. A bitter heart. And we go, oh, Lord, I get it. Bitterness is so crafty. Satan wants to destroy our lives. Don't you think one of his agendas would be, when they get hurt, I'm going to cause them to be bitter? They won't be able to extend forgiveness. And then once their heart's hard, I've got them. I've got them. And so Esau is that example of don't go down that road of bitterness. Verse 17, this will be our last verse to tonight. I thought I was going to make it through the rest of the chapter, but that was wishful thinking. For you know that afterward, when we wanted to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no place for repentance though he sought it diligently with tears. Esau was truly sorrowful. He was truly sad by the choices of his decisions, but he never found place for repentance. There's a difference between being sorry and sorrowful and repentant. In 2 Corinthians 7, it says this, "'Now I rejoice, not that you were made sorry, "'but that your sorrow led to repentance. "'For you were made sorry in a godly manner "'that you might suffer loss.'" from us in nothing for godly sorrow produces repentance leading to salvation not to be regretted but the sorrow of the world produces death so people that don't know Christ as their savior they get sorry over their sin as well but it doesn't lead to repentance but godly sorrow is one that leads to repentance where we turn from sin and we turn to the lord we do 180 how would God want us to apply this section of Scripture tonight? Is first, be trained by God's discipline and God's, tr- God's direction. His correction in our lives. I don't believe there's coincidences. And there may be an area of our life tonight, if we listen to the Lord, where God lovingly but firmly says, Okay, it's time for you to deal with this. It's time for you to make it right. Make it right with the Lord. Make it right with the appropriate parties. I remember being in school ministry. I went to a two-year Bible college and then did a one-year school ministry at the church that I I grew up at. And the first three months of our school ministry, we we had to read through the Bible. So we had to read through big chunks of the Bible. And I was reading through Proverbs. And I noticed how much God hates lying. In Proverbs. I was in this small classroom late at night reading Proverbs over and over again, it, it stood out. And sometimes when you're reading the word, you know you're getting corrected if it's like there's a highlighter on your page, even though you didn't highlight it. And I knew there were lies in my life that I hadn't dealt with. Because when I was in that two year Bible college, my last semester, of your grade was whether you did the required reading. And in this last semester, I was really busy. I was working at a camp and taking some classes. So when I did my final exams, they said, did you do all the required reading? And I said yes, when the truth was no. What I told myself is I will do the required reading. What does it matter if I do it now or later? And I was really proud of the grades that I got in Bible college. Like, woo! look at me. I got good grades in Bible college. So I didn't want my GPA from Bible college to, to go down. So, so I lied. Isn't sin deceptive? We can talk ourselves into all kinds of junk, can't we? Right? I talked myself right into that. And here I am reading in Proverbs. And the Lord's like, you got to make it right. You, you, you got to make it right. So I sat down, wrote a letter to the college, explained the whole thing to them, put it in the mail. It was a long time ago. We used mail then. Email really hadn't become a thing. Some time goes by, I get a letter back, and you could almost hear them laughing. I mean, in the letter. I mean, they said, the school exists to help you grow in your relationship with the Lord. It sounds like that's accomplished. Don't worry about it, right? You know? I was thinking, are they going to take my degree from this unaccredited Bible college? You know, I was, I was all, at that point in my life, I was, all, I was all stressed out about it. But that night in that classroom, it was heavy. God was saying, it's time to deal with this area of your character. And I knew if I didn't do it, I would be bearing the weight of the conviction of the Lord, and I don't think there's anything worse than that feeling. Even more so than the consequences and getting exposed. Like when God's dealing with us on something and he's saying, okay, it's time, you, you need to make this right. You need to confess to me and, sh- and share with others. There's that wrestling. There's that conviction. But then if we choose to follow the Lord in that, the freedom that comes afterwards the weight that's lifted. And I slept good that night because it, it had been dealt with. And you'd think now, years later, that it would be easier when the Holy Spirit's convicting me that I would just respond real fast. But it's always a wrestling. There can be those moments of, nope, I'm not going to say anything. I'm, I'm just going to, I'll deal with this on my own. I've got this. Or there can be that yielding. So will you yield to the Lord? And as we come to communion, I'd encourage you to confess to the Lord, but then also agree with the Lord right now that you're gonna share with the appropriate party. There's gonna be a ministry team that's available. We're encouraged to confess to one another and pray for one another that God would bring healing. It's not condemnation and shame, but as brothers and sisters in Christ, we want to rally around you. But I believe there's some phone calls that need to be made. There's some texts before you go to bed. And if you're anything like me, respond tonight, because by tomorrow morning, you'll talk yourself out of it. I don't, I don't even own nothing, you know? Everybody lies. Wait, wait a second. God's saying it's time to deal with it. So let's go to the Lord and respond to him. Father, right now, as we come and we take communion together, we pray that you would do your work. We understand your word, that you love us. You're a loving Father. Would you help us to see you as a loving Father? And as you bring correction, as you bring rebuke, and you bring chastening, we know it's for our benefit. So would you help us to respond? May your message be clear and may our response be clear. In Jesus' name, amen.